Welcome to Roundtables on Race, the podcast that seeks to explore the relationship between race and the many facets of our society. I'm your host, the Reverend Kathy Walker, and today we're excited to begin our season of exploration on race and the news media. It's not just the first episode of the season, but it is our very first episode of the podcast, and we are so glad that you're on this journey with us. In this episode, we start our conversation on race and the news media with a look back at the historical context. By gaining a deeper understanding of how people of color have been portrayed in the past, we'll be better able over the course of this season to see how historical actions have influenced and continue to influence the news media today. We're delighted to be joined by two guests with a wealth of knowledge on this topic. And it is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Trevi McDonald. She is an associate professor and the director of diversity, equity, and inclusion at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill's Hussman School of Journalism and Media. Her teaching interests include diversity and media, electronic communication, and media and society. Her research interests include media, socialization, audience studies, oral history, and race and gender. She is currently collecting the oral histories of Black journalists who covered the civil rights movement. This oral history documentary project focuses on the key events beginning with the 1963 March on Washington for jobs and freedom through Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination in 1968 through the lens of Black journalists. And also today we have Professor Andrew Rojecki, a professor of communications and political science at the University of Illinois in Chicago. He researches and teaches communications in three contexts, political movements, racial politics, and globalization. Among his publications, he is the co-author of the award-winning The Black Image in the White Mind, a work that offers a comprehensive look at the intricate patterns of racial depiction in the mass media, revealing how those patterns shape and reflect the ambivalent attitudes of whites towards blacks. Welcome Dr. McDonald and Professor Rajecki to Roundtables on Race. Thank you, Kathy. Thanks, happy to be here. Thank you, it's a pleasure to have you. So we wanna start at the beginning, at the basics, I think, and ask the question, um, what is the historical perspective of the news media and its relationship to the communities that it serves? And I think I'm gonna start with you, um, Professor Rajecki, um, really because of the book that you've written. Well, I think that the, there's a very complex history and whenever I, whenever I teach, um, whenever I teach my course to my students on um, race relations and specifically racial politics, um, it's always difficult finding the beginning. You know, you just keep on tracing backward. Um, ostensibly, the course is about mass media, but then you really have to sort of go into the early history of the United States and to think this, or to think about the sort of ideological um, support for the ideas of race, and that goes back to the early 18th century. So even figures that um, our students admire, say Thomas Jefferson, you know, uh, was conflicted. Um, obviously uh, opposed to slavery, but also providing kind of a luster for the idea of, of segregation. In other words, that he felt that freed slaves weren't 
fully prepared to become citizens. And so kind of gave a luster to the idea of segregation. And segregation, I think for me in any case, becomes kind of a, a guiding concept um, for talking about race in America is that the United States continues to be a racially segregated uh, country. And so consequently the news media become more important because they become kind of the medium through which a lot of whites uh, get their first impressions of blacks. So I think that um, Dr. McDonough you, uh, can weigh in here a little bit and say, um, you know, I keep thinking of that quote, is, is life imitating art, is art imitating life, right? So for news people, you always think that you're getting an honest and true account of an event. But if we're talking about the news media and how it has contributed to certain kinds of stereotypes, what does that say about the news media as an industry and, and a collector of honest accounts of events? Yes. Um, so when you think about how the news media has traditionally portrayed people from minoritized communities, it is through the lens often of the journalist who's doing the story. Um, you really did not see a lot of journalists of color in the press until late 1960s, early 1970s. And even then they were not in managerial roles that kind of guided um, that representation. Okay, so now that we have a, a, a greater representation, are we beginning to see any sort of shift in how these stories are then told? I think it's really important to consider the role of journalism education and the importance of having a more inclusive curriculum in uh, regards to the stories that we're going to hear in present day and in the future. Uh, Keith Woods, who was with Pointer, developed the concept of excellent journalism. Excellent journalism is context plus complexity plus voices, letting people tell their stories in their own voice with their own emotion, authenticity and proportionality. And I think as we begin to train more journalists and strategic communicators to tell the stories with that concept in mind, we're going to begin to see more of a shift. Also, you have to think about mainstream media versus new media because technology has really changed just the opportunity for um, stories and different voices to be told and heard. Right now, I think we, we have, um, we're, we're, things are not perfect right now, certainly. And I think that um, we do have the opportunity to move towards a more inclusive um, storytelling. So, Professor I agree. I, go ahead. Excuse me. I, I agree. I, I think that uh, with, um, uh, with uh, Trevi, uh, apart from, you know, when we try to train journalists to become much more sensitive to kinds of issues, um, this reminds me of the interviews that we did for our book. Um, and one of the interviews that I did was of a, a fairly uh, wealthy white woman who lived in a, a white suburb of Indianapolis. And uh, she had grown up um, in a working class neighborhood, I believe in Tampa and Florida where a lot of her schoolmates were black. And so she had, she had a mechanism for sort of decoding news content 
um, specifically news content, you know, about crime news, which is largely what uh, local news is about, uh, because it's 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 easy, right? It's uh, easily available. Uh, and she said that, you know, no one wakes up one day and decides to become a drug dealer, you know. Uh, and so she provided this sort of long, sort of contextual explanation of what leads people to do bad things, you know. And, but but she had that as part of her organic experience, having grown up in that kind of neighborhood. And so she could instantly uh, critically appraise news reports because they typically just are surface, right? You have no idea about all the intervening steps that sort of led to that. And for, and for a lot of whites, you know, that's truly, um, that's really all that they understand, right? So it takes that kind of experience obviously reflected, you know, in journalists who come from those kinds of circumstances, you know, so they have a more nuanced kind of a sense of, of what reality is. You know, Andrew, when I was reading your book, The Black Image and the White Mind, and I realized that you wrote this book, I think about 20 years ago now. That's correct. And, um, but parts of it read like it was written yesterday. So <laughs> I'm really always trying to figure out how much progress are we really making? Like you think about um, news accounts and um, I think the crime beat is one of the most fascinating ones because if you look at news stories, even if they use, um, uh, you know, clip art almost, if they have an, if they want to portray an image of somebody in handcuffs, nine times out of 10, that is always going to be a person of color. So that you begin to create these images in the minds of people that then most criminals or all criminals must be black or must be people of color. So I guess my question for you is if you were gonna write this book today, would there be stark differences between where we were 20 years ago and where we are now? Yeah, well, I think that uh, 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 Trevi's comment about new media, I think is really pertinent here. We've had kind of a um, separation of audiences into, into um, niche audiences you know, to which uh, different, um, specifically in, in television, for example, in, in, cable, in cable news, let's say, they appeal to the sort of ideological views of their audiences as kind of a marketing technique. Um, and so if, I were to, if, if we were to do this study today, I mean, I, I, was, I would certainly take that into account, uh, the sort of partisanship that sort of entered uh, news coverage. It's, it's pretty clear that, uh, you know, for example, Fox News um, frames Black Lives Matter in a way that would be completely alien to people who watch MSNBC, you know, and so you have this, this kind of separation by audience. Um, when we wrote the book, uh, we were largely uh, looking at mass media because at that time we we're looking at major networks and major newspapers. Today, today it's much more complex. Um, it, it would be a pretty difficult undertaking, I think, uh, but certainly it would begin with, with that sort of partisan divide, I think. So Trevi, as you're preparing students um, to go out and, and to do journalism and to do media kinds of, of uh, have media kinds of occupations, what is the, um, how do they um, portray this whole concept of what we're calling alternative facts? Or what, how do we distinguish between um, the truth? I mean, because somewhere there is the, 
the real truth, right? And like um, what Andrew was referring to is if you look at something like Black Lives Matter and how if I watch one station, it's going to be portrayed as something. And if I watch another station, it's going to be portrayed as something else. So in the think tank, in the, in the laboratory of the classroom, how are we talking about these kinds of things? So again, the role of research is, is just so important and so monumental um, to all that we do in uh, the field of journalism. Um, I, you know, I have, I have students do, uh, I'm like stumbling here, <laughs> but um, I teach a course on diversity and communication where we explore these topics, where we focus on just different fault lines like social class, like immigration, like race, like crime, and just really teaching the students to do research, to see different viewpoints, um, to, to gather the voices of those who are actually experiencing um, these different issues and to let them not just speak only about those issues, but interviewing them about just a range of topics and being, being more comprehensive. Uh, to piggyback on when you were talking about the crime, uh, co crime coverage earlier, I use an example in my class to illustrate what you say of the cover from a newspaper in Brookhaven, Mississippi, where in the left column, there was a story about a murder and there's a very small um, headshot of a white person who was uh, accused of murdering someone. And then in the middle of the paper, there's a great big picture of a red SUV that was allegedly involved in an attempted burglary at a pawn shop. And uh, you know, a, a black um, suspect. And just the, we talk about the amount of space and we, we rate it in relation to excellent journalism. Um, so I think about who are, who's the editor, what was their training, what is their exposure and their experience, and that is, is so, so, so important. Um, I think about my own experience as a radio TV film major in undergrad at the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh, where many of my classmates had not had much experience or exposure to people of a different race. And just how they went to television for what they thought about and the assumptions that they made about people who were of different um, races and from minoritized communities. And that's why it is so important that we have a range of storytellers telling the stories. Agreed. I, you know, over the weekend, of course, we, there was a great deal of focus on um, the 100th anniversary of the um, of the uh, Tulsa of the the whole burning of Black Wall Street in Tulsa, and one of the interesting things to me about that whole thing is that what ignited that whole thing was this little article. They kept showing the article on television over the weekend, right? So you have, I mean, you have the the story of something that happened that today nobody can really tell you what it was between this black boy and a black, and a white girl. But what was fascinating was that it was the article in the paper about what should be done to the black boy that sort of then sparked this whole, um, you know, Calvary and everybody deciding that they had to once and for all take charge. And so you, I'm still 
trying to determine whether or not we could almost have a similar situation today um, based on a, um, the interpretation of an event by news media? Or do we think people would discount it? Or, I mean, could you see a situation that have we gotten better at depicting stories so that this probably would not be an issue today? Or are we still kind of in some ways in that space of 1921? And neither one of you can answer. Andrew, you can take a stab at that. Yeah, so I, I think here one, one interesting facet of your question is whether audiences today are much more critical of what they see. And I would say that's the case because again, they've been, they you know, Trump just kind of, you know, popularized the idea of fake news. Um, and inadvertently, I think, uh, developed kind of a sense of, you know, I mean, for him, it was a, it was kind of a political agenda to sort of, you know, uh, undermine the uh, credibility of mainstream media. But in a sense, he made people more skeptical about what they were seeing. And that's a fascinating question. I, you know, I, I think that's something that really needs to be researched. Uh, whether people, you know, take their surface view of the news um, like they used to, or whether some critical faculties have sort of developed. Um, I think people, you know, there is this kind of a uh, kind of a feedback loop between the kind of research that we do um, and experts and then ordinary people. Like for, for example, the concept of framing, right? Which is a very powerful concept in, in communication. Uh, how you can take the same event and have people interpret it in different ways. Uh, that's become kind of a, become part of the vocabulary of, of politics today, you know, how, you know, how, how an issue is framed. So people, I think, I think uh, audiences are more, are more cr critical and discerning. Um, but whether that makes them more sympathetic or not uh, is, I think, is, is the key. And that's, and that's where we really need to do some research about that. Yeah, I agree with Andrew. And if you think about 1921, just the modes of communication were more limited. Yes. Print, radio. And I think now with the evolution of the internet and the you know opportunity for more information to get out, there's a possibility of more perspectives to be presented. Now, the question is, will these audiences actually consume these multiple perspectives? Or are people just want to believe what they want to believe? And then are they looking for those particular perspectives that align with their own beliefs? And is that the concern? Uh, so do we become more polarized as we look for, you know, that specific kind of media that seems to align with our own values and our own belief system? Well, there is this notion of confirmation bias, you know, which not only happens to ordinary people, but even happens to people like ourselves, you know, who do research, you know, we're, we're looking for certain outcomes based on the theories that we use. And this is certainly a pretty, a pretty common kind of phenomenon among, among people. Um, and so the question is, you know, whether or not the, the new media landscape is, is more likely to encourage confirmation bias, or are people more likely to sort of sample their way through um, uh, different kinds of perspectives? 
I think that the idea that audiences seek to sort of um, to sort of seek to sort of seek to confirm or sort of seek seek media sources that sort of confirm their 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 prior thinking that's a bit exaggerated. I think the research shows that uh, people do look to other sources. Um, now, what the motives are for those things, I, I don't know. Uh, maybe it's because they think that. Uh, um, listening or watching media sources that they disagree with gives them gives them better better ammunition um, against those perspectives, or whether it truly enlightens them. Um, and again, I think that there is really hasn't there hasn't been enough time that can kind of elapsed. I think for us to sort of draw any quick conclusions about that. You know, Trevi, I think about the the project that you're working on currently, um, this oral history of, of Black journalists, which I'm I'm really um, excited to hear more about and to um, and I, I can't wait until your project is completed to 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 really be able to um, listen to the stories as told through the the lens of Black journalists. But you know, one of the things that um, as as a journalist, I, I was. I studied journalism at the community college so um, years ago, and one of the things that we were we talked about was how television, in its sort of still infancy stages, though, really sort of changed the trajectory of the civil rights movement based on Bloody Sunday. Right, that people when they saw that that was just a bridge too far. Um, yeah. And even earlier with the Birmingham campaign, seeing those children in 1963 being um, hosed down by fire hoses that were so powerful with regards to the pressure that they would strip the bark off of a tree. That just really, I think, awakened to the general uh, American public to what was going on in the South and led to more coverage by um, both black and mainstream presses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and my uh, I teach a course on the Black press in U.S. history, and each semester, each spring when I teach the course, I pair students into teams of two. Each team is assigned a key event during the civil rights movement, and one student researches how it was covered in the mainstream press, and the other student researches how it was covered in the Black press. And one of the big differences they found is the way the Black press really humanized the uh, people who were involved in these different events. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, I think if you then fast forward to um, the George Floyd massacre last year, right? Or how that was portrayed in media. Again, I don't know, it was during the trial that when um, certain out media outlets talked about the need to humanize George Floyd, that I realized that of the disconnect, I think, between various types of media and this whole notion that we are still in a place where um, people of color don't seem quite human to to the dominant culture. Is, is, is that a good, accurate kind of depiction? Yeah, I believe so. Um, when you think about even coverage of athletes, mm -hmm. Black athletes in this uh, recent uh, ruling regarding um, concussions and brain injuries with Black athletes. It's, it's atrocious that in 2021, we're still having um, thoughts and conversations about this, um, that there is a difference between humans based on race. Um, so I think that is still something that we definitely need to improve upon as a society. 
So what is the media's responsibility in shaping the views of society? Who ultimately has the responsibility for this? I think definitely it's just so important to have diverse storytellers telling diverse stories and applying the concepts of excellent journalism, letting voices be heard in their, in their own emotion, in their own words, rather than talking about a group or talking about a person. That is just so, so important. Uh, presenting it authentically and also examining it from different perspectives. Um, for example, in my communication, diversity and communication course, I take a, a news story or news event and I have students analyze how it's covered in Al Jazeera, BBC, CNN, and Fox News with regards to news values, with regards to framing, with regards to quality of sources. Just to gain media literacy, and this is something that everyone needs to do, just look at some of these stories from different perspectives. I think that's, that's gonna be super important because I'm wondering as you're talking about having various storytellers authentically tell these stories, but if I am a person who is only a conservative news media watcher, how do I engage and do I have to then make conscious decisions again about which media outlet to watch in order for me to um, come to acceptance of the humanization of certain people. Yeah, I can, I can weigh in on that a little bit. I mean, over the last 10 or 15 years, we've been seeing, um, at least in the, in the, in the Republican Party, uh, this, the sense of fear uh, that whites are becoming a minority group numerically, which I think, of course, is an absurd idea because there are plenty of instances where you find minority populations um, dominating um, uh, majority populations, such as in South Africa. Uh, but certainly, I think the Republican Party has been playing upon the fears of whites, you know, that they're somehow about to become um, minorities. And, and lots of research showing that whites feel victimized um, you know, kind of an ironic, <laughs> an ironic kind of uh, a position given given their position uh, in um, in society. So I think you know, going back to the question of of, um, I think it really is important. I think to have um, diversity of of perspectives based based upon I think the the life experiences of, of the journalists themselves. Um, that becomes a lot more compelling, I think, uh, for uh, those people who actually write these stories. In other words, it's, you know, obviously when you're working for an organization like Fox, you're not going to frame a story in a way that, uh, you know, kind of um, um, sort of is at odds with the sort of implied editorial policy. But I think that um, provided that newsrooms are um, seated with people who come from these diverse backgrounds, at some point their their experience becomes kind of a, an important kind of critical um, tool that they use to sort of um, interpret what they're writing about. Um, 
I think that's it's hugely important. I know that in at least in many of our faith communities now, um, we're going back and we're really trying to open up and look at the history of our particular communities over a span of time to figure out, you know, what went right and what went wrong, especially as it pertains to, um, uh, the, you know, the, the um, constructs between the races throughout history. So, you know, depending upon which community, which faith community you're looking at, it may be expand all the way back to the time of the Civil War or what have you. But there is a growing need right now or sense of urgency in some of these places to really do this work and to figure out how to, um, first of all, recognize um, what, what we did that was not right. Right. And so I guess my question to you is in your as you look at news organizations, do they have any responsibility from time to time to really sit and examine how um, they have impacted society based on their depiction of different groups of people throughout history? I can give the example of the News and Observer, uh, which in 1898 ran a Negro domination propaganda campaign which really stoked um, the fires in part that led to the Wilmington massacre insurrection of 1898, which is the only successful coup d'etat in US history that people are really just starting to learn about. In 2006, they published a special section um, titled The Ghost of 1898, and they actually um, apologized. Mm. For, for their role, Josephus Daniels was the editor. Um, there is a digital exhibit that's available online at Wilson Library at UNC Chapel Hill of some of those articles and, and mostly political cartoons. And they did political cartoons because the literacy rate was much lower then mm -hmm. and it was something that would, would stand out um, to people. Yeah, and also I think we also have the precedent of uh, you know, organizations like the New York Times admitting uh, that they were um, led too much by the Bush administration and, and to, into the uh, invasion of Iraq. You know that their that their news coverage was was skewed in retrospect. Um, so it's a it's, it's a great question. You know, you know, are news organizations uh, more sensitive to certain kinds of coverage than others? Right. Uh, question I would ask, you know, are our are, are news organizations uh, self-critical when it comes to issues of race? Are, are they, are, are they, you know, and, and if so, how, how do they become that way? Right. Um, and I think for, I think for, for issues of race, because the, because the issues are so, are so entrenched, I think it's really, it's really, it's really difficult. Uh, I think sometimes to sort of see, uh, the uh, long-term consequences of uh, certain kinds of news coverage, like for example, in local news, you know, local news, you know, the you know it trades on it trades on crime because it's because it's cheap and it's and it's dramatic. Um, you know, I wonder if if local news if the local news organizations are at all uh, concerned about the effect that it has on on their audiences' perspectives on reality. It sort of exaggerates. Um, the importance of certain kinds of, uh, of stories. I think, you know, station managers 
you know, unfortunately are driven by, by bottom line concerns. Um, and I think it takes political movements to sort of make them self-aware and make them a little bit more critical. So I think that the, uh, I don't think we can rely entirely on news organizations themselves. I think it really, it really depends on the, the sort of force of political, external political movements to uh, make them much more um, self-aware or at least, uh, you know, to sort of think about the consequences of what they're doing. Mm. I like that. That's, that's really fascinating. So before you came into the room this morning, as it were, <laughs> Andrew, um, Trevi and I were talking about, um, you know, the idea that um, every generation thinks that it's finally going to be the one that really resolves many of the, the major issues around race and that we're going to be the group that gets it right. And that, you know, I'm at a sort of at a point right now where I don't think it's going to be my generation it does seem like it, it's going to happen right now. Um, but she was very excited about uh, the Gen Xers. So I'd like you to just tell me a little bit, uh, Trevi, um, before we end our time today, what gives you hope and what inspires you in the young students that you're teaching now and why you think they'll be the group that, you know, resolves a, a lot of these issues. Yeah, I think Generation X grew up in, I want to say like a more multicultural environment than say millennials or um, actually Gen, Gen Z than um, previous generations. I think they have more awareness. I think the advancement in technology and how media has changed and transformed. I have a uh, you know, 93 year old mom who's with me and um, like she loves to watch Twins, The New Trend on YouTube and just introducing her to the concept of now you don't have to watch something when it airs, you can watch things anytime. I think that is a really, really big game changer. And I think too about the students I taught as a TA um, and a course in third world media in the early 1990s when I was a graduate TA mm -hmm. and the students I teach today, they're much more aware. A lot of them do not like what's going on. They're not having it and they will get on social media and let you know that they're not having it. Whereas I think previous generations because of the way we were just the way technology existed and the way we communicated back then, we are not as necessarily as savvy in doing that. That's true. I think that's fair. Andrew, what do you think about your students? I agree. I agree. You know, the, the idea of sort of, you know, available cheap technology, I mean, we certainly wouldn't have had the outcome that we did in, in, in Minneapolis, you know, had it not been for the, uh, uh, you know, for, for someone, you know, figuring out that they ought to um, record, record, you know, Chauvin with his, with his, with his knee, you know, on, on George Floyd's neck. I mean, that was so compelling, you know, going back to, you know, images that come from the civil rights movement. That was one of those compelling visuals that I think not only altered the way that we think about race here in the United States, but really around the world. So it's really, really an amazing thing. This is a really tough issue because, you know, um, one, of the, one of the components of a course that I teach is about uh, uh, interracial marriage and, and dating, um, and, uh, which I think is ultimately the solution to all of our problems here. <laughs> I mean, if I could, you know, I mean, for me, that is the, that is the path to, uh, you know, eliminating the idea of race completely. Um, 
and what I find is that although our students are very sympathetic and uh, very sensitive to issues of race, when it comes down to dating, and even this even turns up in, in uh, dating sites like, uh, oh, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the name of it, OkCupid, okay, uh, where they actually keep track of um, uh, dating patterns. You know, it turns out that uh, whites are very much in favor of interracial marriage, but not so much when it comes to dating, right? Um, and when I talk to my when I talk to my students about this, a lot of my students are, are Latinos and they say that they're open to this, but they then feel the pressure of their families, right? Mm -hmm. Their families make it more difficult for them. Uh, and so I think it's much more, it's, it's more than a generational phenomenon, I think. I think it has to be sort of located within, uh, located within family contexts, which of course then, talks about historical context. Um, I'm waiting for some kind of breakthrough in, in, in that area um, because certainly people have much more access than they ever have to potential partners uh, that we're not, we are seeing more interracial marriage but it's largely between whites and Asians and whites and, and Latinos and, but also an, an increase between whites and blacks but that seems to be the the more the more difficult challenge to to overcome. We certainly see a lot of more of these kinds of relationships in in um, in uh, entertainment television, um, and so I think that the ground is being prepared. Maybe you know so that family members don't don't put don't put so much pressure um, on their kids. You know to sort of date within within their racial group, and this also applies to to blacks themselves, right? Uh, uh, I, had a, I had a student who, uh, very, just a brilliant student, and she was, we were, you know, speaking about this particular issue, and she says that, you know, that I have to acknowledge that, you know, when I'm dating someone who's white, you know, I have to explain to them uh, how it feels to be black, you know, and it's so much easier to speak to someone who's black, you know, who understands what I feel without having having to explain it. Um, so I think that we're on the right path. Um, but I think it's uh, I think that the, it's still a very challenging one. I would agree. I think um, yeah, I, I like the idea that um, more interracial um, marriages. People always say because once you have grandchildren, everything everything gets kind of <laughs> becomes equalized, right? Because everybody wants to hold on and love the grandchild. So maybe that is the whole um, that will straighten out a lot of these things. But I think that. Um, uh, the challenge of will, ongoing will continue to be how we're going to portray history. And, um, you know, one of the things Trevi and I spoke about earlier is just all of the things that have been going on on the campus of UNC um, at Chapel Hill, as, you know, <laughs> in terms of, uh, as it relates to the uh, 1619 Project and Nicole Hannah-Jones, and I'm sure that there will be a resolution to that. But I think that you just continue to see um, how you have these tensions of what it, what our history um, has portrayed certain people and trying to go back now and correct that history or to say it's time for us to make this all a part of American history and how you have that tension even in a school of journalism where they too have to grapple with what deserves to be in and what should be left out. And so um, if you look at, um, if you consider that, um, yes, going forward, the, the more the racist mixes 
do we expect then that the history and the of of what has happened in America will be told will will be more readily accepted because there's the rub. Yeah. <laughs> There's the role because of course, right now we have an effort to suppress this information through these bills that have been passed in I think 12 states for K through 12 education. And I shared with you in our earlier conversation about five years ago when I discussed the Wilmington massacre with my students, we had a really, really robust discussion. Most of my students have been educated in North Carolina and they were very upset. They said they felt like they had been lied to and wish that they had gotten this in maybe middle school. They thought maybe, okay, at, at middle school age, that's when we could kind of understand this, you know, better than at an earlier age. But um, I think that it's just so important for us to um, just go outside of the curriculum and teach our, our children. I think about my own upbringing on the South side of Chicago, how we got black history from kindergarten in my neighborhood and I, I grew up thinking that everyone got that same education and then I got older and I learned that that's not the case at all. Um, it's just so important because I feel that so many of our experiences, particularly those from minoritized communities have absolutely been left out as has a lot of the legislation that this country uh, passed to discriminate against certain groups. And that, but that might be like a whole nother conversation, things like the Indian Removal Act, the Chinese Exclusion Act, the Gentleman's Agreement. Mm -hmm. Agreed. I agree. And, you know, I, I used to work before I, before I became an academic, I worked in um, educational publishing. Um, you know, so we would, we would, we would publish, for example, history books um, for uh, elementary schools and high schools. Well, guess who has the biggest market uh, in education? It's Texas, and so we would have to we would have to write our history with respect to what Texas school boards wanted us to write. And of course, this became transparent, um, and so everyone in the, in the entire country got essentially what the Texas school boards were asking us to do, largely because of their economic power. So, you know, this is something that uh, I don't think you really get a sense of until you go to, uh, go to uh, higher education and then realize that there are different kinds of histories as opposed to the sort of pablum uh, that we find in uh, high school textbooks. Well, I must tell you, I could talk to you all about this all day long. This is such an important topic and it's just been um, great, but we're out of time. So that's all the time we have for this particular conversation. And I wanna say thank you again to our wonderful, wonderful guest, Dr. Trevi McDonald. Thank you so much for being a part of this inaugural podcast and to Professor Andrew Rojecki. I have enjoyed our conversation so much. And, um, and I look forward to perhaps having you on again when we can continue to explore, you know, how history is impacted by, by race and race relations. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you.